Amen, amen. Hey, good morning, City Light. It's good to see you all. My name is Glenn. serve as one of the pastors here. That is a joy of mine. Get the joy of uh, preaching God's Word today. We are in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, it's in the Gospel of John. So if you brought your Bible, I want you to turn there right now. Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 16. Chapter 16. John is an eyewitness account to the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, the more I study this book, the more I'm so compelled by this book because of its author. Uh, John, the author, is one of Jesus' best friends. He's one of, their, one of the guys there in Jesus' life, his ministry, three years of seeing Jesus perform miracles, seeing Jesus heal, seeing Jesus, the Son of God, preach and teach, and John is right there to witness it all, and thus he pins this, and where we are this morning is in the middle of what's called the farewell discourse. Jesus, after three years of ministry, is now going to leave. He understands the plan for salvation, and that is that he would go to the cross. He would die. Three days later, he would come back from the grave and go to be at the right hand of the Father. And these are his parting words that we're reading this morning. This is Jesus' final instruction, and I, I just want to kind of get real for a second. I can't imagine the insecurity of these men. It's really cute to say, like, man, I can't, you know, imagine the insecurity of these guys when we're reading anything that's in this farewell discourse. It's chapters 13 through 17 of John. But there's something about this particular moment that makes my heart feel for these men. Jesus is coming off of telling them, hey, guys, the world is going to hate you because of me. You are going to experience increasing persecution for your allegiance to me. And oh, by the way, I'm leaving. I won't be here with you physically anymore. These men are probably questioning everything. Life will become increasingly difficult because we're following someone who will be gone and Jesus acknowledges this in John chapter 16 and verse 6. This is what he says. Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus loves these men. He grieves with these men. And yet the next verse, Jesus says something that we're going to talk about this morning. In verse 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now I want to stop right there. Nevertheless means despite all that I've said, Pay attention to what I'm about to say. And then he says, I tell you the truth. Do you think Jesus hasn't been telling them the truth up to this point? He's saying, I tell you the truth. Pay attention. Listen to these words. It is to your advantage. It is for your good if I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The exit of God the Son will mean the entrance of God the Spirit. City Light, don't miss this. The story of these men in this upper room, it's insane. These guys right now, these men are cowardly. They're scared. They're fearful. They are people-pleasing. They are world-tempted. But then the Spirit of God comes. Pentecost comes. These men are changed, completely changed. What they turn around to do is they band 
together with boldness and with courage. And they work together toward the will and the plan of God in the world. And most of them do so unto their death because they're filled with the Spirit. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, but you're pretty quiet about it. You don't want to be too overt about it. You're kind of a Christian introvert. You don't want to offend. You don't really think or wrestle with what it would mean for your life if God would want to leverage it for his kingdom because you lack some kind of readiness or you're afraid Jesus has a word for you this morning. And yet some of you in the room, you're on the other side of it where your testimony is the story of steps of faith that you never thought you would take. Things have changed within you that you never thought would change. You've served, you've given, you've sacrificed your time, your resources, your skills for the building of God's kingdom, the bettering of his church, because you've been moved by the Holy Spirit of God to do so. Some of you are in the room and you've shared your faith and you've invited folks to repent of sin. You never thought you would have that conversation. Some of you are in the room and you've prayed and you've fasted and you've used spiritual gifts and abilities to build up the church that you never would have envisioned God giving you and you employing before. You have given up something that was once of value to you, but it doesn't hold your affections anymore. You don't care about it the way that you used to because the Spirit of God has entered in. This is the work of the Spirit of God in you. Our text this morning, I think, is an incredible call to a young church like ours because it's going to call us into something that's really, really simple. It's going to call us into two realities, church, and I've, I've kind of titled this sermon and what Jesus is telling his disciples. It's this. It's really novel and really clever. Trust God's work and trust God's word. Trust God's work and trust God's word. It's that simple. I want to show us from this passage that too often in the Christian life, too often in Christian churches, too often in, in, in evangelicalism, we get in God's way. Can I say that again? City Light Bennington. Too often we get in God's way. We have a really bad habit from our old sinful nature, similar to back in the garden where we think we can do a better job of being God than God can. And so we think we need to be clever and we need to be cute and we need to be novel. We need to innovate and strategize to the utmost if we're to see God's mission to make and multiply disciples go forward. We say we need to be the main character, our leadership needs to be the engine. Our ideas need to be the answers. Our image needs to be the appeal. City Light, I believe that God blesses the kind of church in which Jesus is the main character. His Holy Spirit is the engine. His word gives all the answers. He is changing us, and that's the appeal. I want to begin to show you this from the words of Jesus himself. Pick it up with me in verse 8. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I want to read the whole thing. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Let me tell you something real quick. 
there is a lot of Bible verses that talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. And virtually all of those are the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian and in the church. This is one of the rare, if not only, texts in your Bible, like right here what we're reading this morning, that describes the work of God in the world. It describes the work of God in people who have an unbelieving heart and mind. It describes the work of God that we can count on in an unbelieving world, in a godless world. To people who have not yet bowed their knee to Jesus, people who are not yet Christ followers. This is a really remarkable text. It's a really important text. And what Jesus does is he plainly describes the work of conviction. That word convict, we use it to say oftentimes as kind of a Christian virtue signal after we leave a Sunday morning, man, that was convicting. (laughs) Y'all know, I do it too. The word convict here could be more said like Akon and Young Jeezy, convict, all right? This is not the Holy Spirit making a person feel kind of bad for some of the decisions that they've made. This is not the Holy Spirit welling up some kind of emotion in someone that really wishes they didn't do something that they did. This is translated in the original language as rendering a guilty verdict. This is an indictment with evidence before a holy God that says, guilty. Guilty. And it's concerning three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want you to pick it up with me in verse 9. I just want to read these one at a time. Sorry. Yeah, verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. I just want to teach us really quick, what is the Spirit's work concerning sin? Well, when we think of sin, we often think of sins, plural. We can list off things like that you just don't do as a Christian, right? It's not godly to cheat on your spouse. It's not godly to have some kind of addiction It's not godly to be in drunkenness or to participate in physical or verbal abuse. It's not godly to have money fraud or to be an Iowa Hawkeyes fan. It's not godly. (laughs) I had y'all. But what what Jesus does here, it's really helpful. He goes far deeper than the sins that we commit and he presses into the nature within us that's underneath that. He presses into our sinful nature. He points to the essence of all sin, and he says, it is an unbelieving heart. I want to tell us something, church. The world does not care about Jesus at all. Doesn't even want to care about Jesus. Doesn't even want to want to care about Jesus until the Spirit of God gives eyes to to see, ears to hear, hearts to know. That was your story and that was my story, if you're a Christian in the room. We didn't want God's forgiveness because we didn't need God's forgiveness. A life before the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin, it looked like assuming that our living against God's will, our ignoring God's commands, our doing what we will with our life apart from God's voice would merely leave God a little bit upset maybe disappointed in us, but certainly not that he would ever do anything about it. It looked like us assuming that we would not be held accountable 
to the rights that God has over us as our creator. It's amazing in, in, um, in the story of Peter in the Bible, who happens to be in that room, Peter's really cowardly before the Holy Spirit comes. Um, he's really afraid of people when Jesus is being tried, so much so that a middle school girl comes to him and says, don't you know Jesus? And he says, no. He's scared of a middle school girl. But after, after Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches something to Israel. I want you to, to um, look with me if you can. It's just a few pages later. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it for you. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in the next verse, the Holy Spirit's work of conviction of sin happens. It says, When the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work in the world convinces a person that their sin runs deep. It's not just bad decisions, but it is an enormous, giant, critical, fatal problem before a holy God. And they got to do something about it. But this isn't enough. It's a really depressing place to stop. If a person knew they had sin before a holy God, but there's nothing they could do about it. The second work that the Spirit does is the Spirit convicts concerning righteousness. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says, I go to the Father. Hold up. Jesus was just as much human as he was God. And he's saying, I'm going to the Father. Church, there's only one life that's ever been lived on this earth that upon its death is ready to go right to be with God. And it's Jesus' life. Jesus was the one who was without sin. He was the only person to ever walk planet earth that gained entry into fellowship with God in heaven. That's how pure and holy and righteous Jesus is. He would live without fault. He was kind, selfless, honorable. He loved people instead of objectifying them. He responded to anger and hate with patience and with wisdom. He was always concerned with the needs of others before his own. He was good. He was holy in every sense. You know what Jesus was? Jesus was righteous. He was righteous in God's sight. He was without sin, and he stands alone in that category. Before God's judgment, Jesus was righteous. He was the one human who stands in our place having lived the life that we can't live. Do you need one verse in the Bible to meditate on this week? 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the great exchange. This is God in heaven looking at us and saying, I will give you a righteousness that comes from heaven. You can absorb that righteousness and my son will absorb your sinfulness. That's the good news of the gospel. We need a righteousness that comes from somewhere else. We need a holiness that comes from heaven and the good news is that Jesus takes our sinfulness and we take his righteousness. That's what happens by faith. That's the love of the Savior. 
the conviction of the Holy Spirit brings a person to that place. You know what's funny is um, there's something about growing and aging in life that kind of removes from us the need for a righteousness that's not our own. Uh, when I was nine years old, I didn't really need um, someone to tell me that I needed a righteousness apart from me because I didn't have the things that I could point to now as a 30-year-old to kind of build a resume for myself. Some of y'all re- like, understand what I'm, what I'm talking about. This, is, this should speak and preach to our community, a self-made community out here in Bennington where people work hard and, and they, they secure the spouse and they get the job and they have the promotion and they make the money and they have the home and they start to build their family and they have degrees in their back pocket and awards and honors and duties and things that they can look to and God says, listen, all of that is a beautiful picture of my image in you. All of that is an amazing reflection of my heart and my character and my nature in you, but none of that gains you entry into heaven. None of that gives you right standing with me. That's all filthy rags. There is only one righteousness that you can possess, and it's Jesus. It's your nature being united to Jesus' nature, and it's the Father looking at you through the lens of his Son. That's the only way that we gain entry into the kingdom of God. Second work that the Spirit does is he convicts us concerning righteousness. And many people in this room, you don't struggle with someone telling you that you're not righteous. You're on the other side of the coin. I just want to pause for a moment and speak to you. You're in a place this morning where maybe you came to church. Like literally the reason you came and sat in a chair this morning is so that you could somehow start to feel right with God. Something in you is declaring you're not. I'm speaking right now actually to the Christians in the room. You've made so many mistakes You've had so many things go wrong and so many times and ways and moments and decisions that you regret. Painful memories that you have, things that you wish that you could take back. I want you to be reminded this morning that Jesus lived in your place. Even on your worst days when you're trapped in a sinful habit and you feel stuck. Even on the days when you hear the voice that you are not worthy of God's favor. Jesus lived in your place on the days when you question will you see God does God care about you is there assurance of your salvation be reminded if your faith is in Jesus he lived in your place the life you now live is by faith in the son of God when God looks at you if your faith is in Jesus he sees Jesus is that not a miracle He sees Jesus' holiness and righteousness. That is grace by definition. That's God giving us something that we have not earned. And that's worthy of us celebrating. Maybe this is the truth that you need to grasp afresh this morning. It's actually a truth that sets the Christian faith apart from every other faith. The Apostle Paul captures it in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3. He says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. This is grace, church. This is grace, church. Church, this is grace. 
This is good news. Jesus has done what we could never do. This is the gospel that we cling to. This is our hope. Jesus has given us his righteousness. There is no nirvana or enlightenment or scale of religious activity to climb. There is Jesus Christ alone. There is Jesus Christ crucified. There is Jesus Christ risen. There is his righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. That has to be the lens through which the Father sees someone if they're to enter his kingdom. So the Holy Spirit awakens the conscience to sin, awakens the conscience to righteousness, and finally he awakens the conscience to judgment. This is short and sweet. The way that the world is described in the Bible in one fell swoop is captured in Romans 3.18, where Paul writes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The Spirit does something. He wakes a person up to the facts. There is one true God, maker of heaven and earth. He is holy. The Spirit awakens someone to a God who will never sweep sin under the rug, but will exact justice upon it because of his righteous character. The Spirit awakens the conscience to a God who will never witness the breaking of his law and ignore it. The Spirit awakens the conscience to a God that if he did nothing, a just God, he would not be. And in the end, Satan, the evil one, the great deceiver, and all who reject Jesus will be judged. All sin, all evil will be judged. You know what's insane about the Gospel of John is in the Gospel of John, we are described as being one of two people, a child of Satan or a child of God by faith in Jesus. To be the former is to be clinging to a sinking ship with a failing captain headed for destruction. John 3, 18 and 19 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe is condemned, whoever does not believe, excuse me, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you're here today, this morning, and you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, you've not yet bowed your knee, you've not been convicted fully in these ways, but maybe there is some kind of conviction happening in you, please do not take that for granted. What Jesus is teaching right here is that you are not coming to a sense of grief on your own, but it is the very power of God at work in you. There is a revival and a spiritual awakening that is happening in you. My plea is for you to not ignore it. It's for you to respond to it. It's for you to turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus, the Holy One, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Friend. Please understand, he died to atone for your sin. Stop striving. Stop trying to obtain and throw yourself at his feet and ask for his forgiveness and give him your life. To the folks here who have been born again, to the Christian in the room, I want to remind us that everything that's brought us to where we are is the work of the Holy Spirit. Can I just invite you, friend, do not forget your lostness. Like whoever you are, whatever your story of faith is, do not forget where you once were. Christian, don't forget how far God has brought you. Don't forget the power of his grace in your life, how generous he's been to look at you at your worst and point to the cross and say, I love you that 
much. Take inventory today, please, if that's all you get out of this sermon, is take inventory of the spiritual realities that were at work and are at work in your story. Don't be deceived. None of us arrived at faith in Jesus without the intervening power of the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? Remember how much you love him because he first loved you. He moved toward you. That's why you worship. That's why you obey. That's why you trust. The character of God has been revealed to you through the power of his spirit. You know what it ought to make us? It ought to make us really humble people. Humble neighbors. Humble online. Humble in the workplace. Humble to our wives. If you're a bride in the room, humble to your husband. Humble before our kids. Humble. Second, and this one stings because it stings for me. Why did we ever stop praying for people? Why have we given up interceding for someone who's far from God? Maybe we got exhausted over time. We didn't feel like we had the answers. That's the problem is we think that God gets exhausted and God doesn't have the answers. Church, I'm asking us once again, yes, we need apologetics. Yes, we need to sharpen our evangelism. But can we put our face to the ground and intercede for people who are far from God? Would we actually ask the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do to bring conviction? And then would we invite conversations about God? Would we invite conversations about sin and righteousness and judgment and about the hope of Jesus Christ, about grace and forgiveness and new life? Are we quenching the work of the Spirit because we're not even letting someone hear the truth, giving them a chance to believe? Are we grieving the work of the Holy Spirit because we're not even asking Him to convict, to lead, to set free, to heal? My encouragement to us this morning, out of this text, 2,000 years ago, in the upper room with Jesus and His disciples, how amazing is that? It's to send the text, set up the meeting, have the conversation, share the dinner, Pray, 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 and then do it again and do it again. Keep going. Don't give up. Let's be less concerned with ourselves and our abilities and our success rate and a lot more concerned with how the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's power will one day be proven. Makes me think of the old hymn, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over I don't remember what year it was, but I'll never forget the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in a young guy's life. His name was Jared. Some dudes in this room know who I'm talking about. Jared was an 18-year-old freshman at UNO. We met at a coffee shop, and we were strangers to one another. Uh, it was one of those things where he had filled out a little survey we did on campus, and he acknowledged, like, yeah, I would be open to a spiritual conversation. So I texted the dude and said, hey, let's meet at Roast in Exarbon. Let's sit down. I just want to get to know you. So we sit down at this table, and I'm telling y'all, when Jared walked into that coffee shop, he did not want to be there. Uh, I did not sense that he cared at all about our topic of conversation. Um, he was just being a nice guy with some good morals, and he, didn't, he wanted to be Nebraska nice. So a dude reached out and texted him, said, hey, can we get together and talk about spiritual stuff? He's like, okay, I, I guess, yeah. So he shows up. I kid you not, an hour and a half later, Jared and I are out in the parking lot, this dude is weeping. Tears are hitting the pavement. He is gripped with sin and righteousness and judgment. And he wants to pray, God, save me, 
fill me with your spirit. Jesus, you have my life. And church, I want you to know that I shared the gospel with him. I shared chapters and verses in my Bible. It was awkward. We were strangers. And God saved him. We've got to stop thinking that God needs more. He was faithful and he will continue to be faithful. And the Bible that I used to teach the gospel, to preach the gospel, to share my own story and my testimony is actually the Bible that Jesus talks about in his final verses in our text this morning. What he's about to do is he's going to give us an assurance in the rest of this passage that God partners with his church through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So far, we've learned what the Spirit does. The big question that should be looming in all of us is how. How does the Spirit do that work? And I want to know, I want to show you that he partners with us to not only trust God's work, but to trust God's word. In John 16, starting in verse 12, this is what Jesus says. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's happening right here is Jesus' diagnosis of this book. Pay attention, Jesus is in the upper room with these guys. And he's saying, I have a lot more to say to you. That's the rest of the pages here. You can't bear them right now, but the spirit of truth is gonna come and guide you into those words. This is the inspiration by the power of the Holy Spirit of the New Testament of our Bible. And if Jesus has an opinion of God's word, shouldn't we have the same opinion? Jesus is saying, the spirit of truth is gonna guide you. He's gonna tell you all the things that are to come, all the things that I have to say that you can't bear right now. Jesus said, This is it. It's here. And church, today we have it in our hands. This is Jesus authenticating our New Testament. To me, that is an amazing reality that John, who is in that room, wrote the book that we are reading and appealing to right now. John, who was in that room, wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John, who was in that room, wrote the textbook of Revelation on the end times. The Holy Spirit guided him into that truth. And so what does it mean? It means that we are not saved by ideas. We're not saved by theories. We're saved by facts. We're saved by real events. We're saved by absolute truth that the Spirit of God gives us. What a promise kept. What a precious book we hold in our hands. Oh, church, that we would read the word. Second, though, What the Spirit does is he illuminates the Bible for us. He guides us into the truth of the word so that an average person can read the Bible and come to an understanding and embrace and experience its power, that it would not be something that's just in our head, but church, the Spirit writes it on our hearts. How many times in your life, Christian, have you opened up your Bible and God has spoken something so powerful to you from words on a page and it's changed your life? That's the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that is bringing truth from God to bear, not just in your intellect, but in your heart, in your will, in your emotions, in your worldview. This is amazing. 
Additionally, the Spirit guides us into all truth. He can give prophetic words. He can still speak today, church. He can give us words of wisdom, words of knowledge. He can give us dreams. He can give us visions. These are good gifts from God. We ought to pursue. We ought to discern. These are personal and body of Christ blessings that our congregation loves to listen. And it's so awesome because the things that the Spirit says are confirmed in this book. The character of God, the way we recognize it is in this book. The way we know his voice is in our Bible. Trust God's work and trust God's word. I want to close with a little bit of an illustration to invite you in. What if Jesus were in the room? If Jesus were sitting on the counter while you and your spouse were having an argument? What if Jesus was sitting there in the circle in your city group? What if Jesus was in your huddle? What if Jesus was in at the table when you're somewhere and someone asks you a question about God? When we offer counsel, what if Jesus was sitting right there? When we're praying for someone, what if Jesus was right there? When we share our testimony and we explain the good news, what if Jesus were sitting right there? What if we had the mind of God in those moments? What if we had the perspective of God in those moments? What if we had the wisdom of God? Y'all know where I'm going with this. It's right here. It has been revealed to us. To me, it's so amazing that every church I've ever been a part of, every church that I've walked from afar, someone comes into the church and they're begging the question, how do I grow as a Christian? Christian publishing is the biggest booming thing in the world right now. There are so many books and resources and there's so many uh, novel methods and, and ways that we try to get to the answer of how do I grow spiritually? Pray and read your Bible. <laughs> Ask any saint that loves Jesus and has walked with him and grown from him. What do they tell you? How has your life changed? I prayed, I learned to pray, and I learned to read my Bible and trust it. Okay, but what else did you do? I prayed again. And I read my Bible again. But after that, how did you, I came back and I prayed again and I said, Spirit of God, move, work, illuminate this, convict, empower, and I read my Bible. I said, that's who I'm supposed to be as a husband. I said, that's who I'm supposed to be as a father. I said, that's who I'm supposed to be as a disciple of Jesus. I said, that's how I'm supposed to view the world. And then I prayed about it and I read it again. Oh, what God would do, church, if we were prayerful people who interceded for our city, interceded for one another, opened up our Bibles and looked at the book and said, God, we trust you. This is your word empowered by your spirit. Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Some of y'all need it simple? Yes, I need it simple. God gives it. The mind of God, the perspective of God, the wisdom of God is all here. What a treasure we have. Why are we not searching it? Why are we not referencing it, trusting it, believing it? I don't have anything to teach without it. Every single appeal that I've made this morning is from it. Would we love God's word? City Light, I believe the kind of church God blesses is the church in which Jesus is the main character. His spirit is the engine. His word gives the answers. His character is the appeal. Can I pray to that end right now for our church in closing? Let's do it together.
Holy Spirit, thank you that we can trust in your work. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to recognize that you've entrusted it to our church, your church, to build your kingdom. God, I pray this morning if there's anyone who sensed conviction, oh Lord, that they would take a step of faith to talk to somebody about it. God, I pray for the Christian in the room who's been searching and searching for new ways to grow, new ways to take new steps of faith. God, would you draw them back to be simple and surrendered to your spirit and your word. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.